This is Office Hours with the Practical Prop and Friends with me, Dr. Santo D. Marabella, your workplace advisor and teacher. Hi, this is Dr. Santo Marabella here with a very special episode of our podcast, Office Hours with the Practical Prop and Friends. In this episode, you'll actually hear a audio, an audio transcript or an audio uh, recording of a recent video that's on my YouTube channel called Black Story Episode 2 on microaggressions. And uh, you'll hear our two guests as well as, well as my co-host, Tim Wortham, Jr. So enjoy and uh, catch you at the end. Just to give a little context, back in the 1970s, Charles Pierce from Harvard wrote about microaggressions, um, and he said that they are incessant and cumulative. Um, these can be based on implicit biases, and they can be either deliberate or unintentional. And then later in, the, in 2010, I believe, it was uh, Durald Wing Sue from Columbia, who really expanded the definition to include um, not only uh, race, but uh, gender, orientation, disability. Um, so I'm really happy to have a co-host today, and I want to welcome um, my co-host, who's Tim Wortham, Jr. And Tim is the Senior Director of Alumni and Family Philanthropic Engagement at Eastern University. Tim, thank you so much for uh, deciding to join and for your input and your um, leadership in this topic. I really appreciate you being with me today. It's my pleasure, Santo. Thank you for having me. Sure. So we've got some great guests. Um, please introduce them and we'll get started with our conversation. Absolutely. So today I'm very pleased to uh, be able to present to you Liz Arab, who's an MSW partner at Redshift Leadership, a Philadelphia-based organizational consulting firm. So welcome, Liza. Hi, And you. we also have Tyshell Graham. She is also an MSW. She's a student affairs professional. She's a clinical social worker and a diversity educator. So welcome to you, Tyshell. Thank you. So we really want to jump right into our questions. And I want to start with you, Tyshell, and ask, how do you understand the term microaggression? So as Santo was describing it, that's kind of where I, um, and really these commonplace, often unintentional, um, you know, slights that happen. Sometimes they are intentional. So um, as we look at them, they're more like the intentional being like a Confederate flag or a swastika. That is not necessarily damaging um, physically, but it is a, a sign. Or there are these micro assaults and, you know, ser someone serving someone before someone else. I think we usually know them as, um, you know, the perpetual foreigner. So um, calling an Asian person or asking where an Asian person is from. Um, but then we also have things like Oh, people say things to me like I got a lot when I was in grad school at Penn. Um, you speak really well, right? So it was this denigrating, um, putting me outside of a certain group or into a certain group. So that's kind of how I navigate what microaggressions are, really a framework 
for these micro or or micro insults or assaults um, that are commonplace that people don't often know are problematic. I would just you know underscore one thing you said, Tashel, which is they're often unintentional, um, and you know what they do is like um, they reinforce inferiority based on someone's membership in a marginalized group, and so. Um, I think one that often happens uh, also is, you know, calling a black person by the name of a different black person, for instance. I think one thing to add to um, that I do in, in working through microaggressions is that it creates this catch 22. Did mm -hmm. this really happen to mm -hmm. me? Um, how can I address it? And it also gives the person who committed the microaggression a way to not be able to uh, have a conversation about it. It creates a lot of, for the person who committed the microaggression, it creates a lot of um, uh, anxiety, right? Because mm -hmm. often they don't know what happened. So that, but for, for people of color or for that marginalized or underrepresented group, it kind of can create, you know, depression and even like group ousting. So they won't be a part of a larger group. So say you're at work and you have white colleagues, um, when microaggressions happen, you're not necessarily going to, um, go to those people, especially if the if you've tried and you can't have a conversation with them. Such a good point. I, I heard a, an interview with Ibram Kendi recently where I think it was with Brene Brown and she asked him, you know, in your history, how many times have you given feedback to a white person, um, you know, about microaggressions or anything? Um, and he, and, and had it go well? And he said, zero, zero. Um, so around microaggressions, that feels like the important message for white people is like, don't be that white person. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and Liz, I have to ask, having said that, how would you explain microaggressions to white people who don't believe they exist or feel like black, indigenous, and people of color are simply being hypersensitive? I've had that conversation a lot. Um, it happens in the organizational context frequently. Um, especially right now, I think people, um, people of color are rising up and sharing their stories collectively so that the message, you can't ignore the message. Um, and it's really tempting for white people, I think, for us to be defensive. Well, I didn't mean that. It wasn't my intention. Um, we get away with a lot with the it wasn't my intention argument. Um, and one of the things that I, I really try to reinforce with my clients broadly, any client who holds any kind of power in a situation, whether it's positional power or, you know, because you're in a white dominant group power, your, what I would say is your impact matters much more than your intent, um, period. And, you know, Part of the defensiveness, I think, is that analogy that, like, the you know, as a white person, it's like you're swimming in water, and it's really hard to look around and recognize, oh, this is water. Um, and I think for that reason, explaining it to someone who doesn't believe in microaggressions or thinks, um, you know, people of color being hypersensitive, as you said, it's not necessarily a cognitive explanation. You know, I think it really depends on the individual. Like, if if it's a person who's okay, if it's a person who's very analytical, maybe you share research, right? Tashel already referenced a study about 
just the the damaging impact of microaggressions. There's there are tons of stories about you know like black teenagers in the U.S. face multiple microaggressions online every you know every day, and it's and it's directly correlated with increased depression. Um, but if somebody's more motivated by emotion, then you know they're probably going to need to hear from the mouths of people of color stories about what the experience is like for them. And there are lots of videos online. It's not, this isn't like, I would suggest, you know, lining people of color up and having them share their stories. Like there are resources out there for us, right? There are videos, there are incredible um, collections of stories. So people, you know, it's a, it's a hearts and minds thing. That puts on a lot of pressure a lot of times for black people of color particularly, which, which kind of leads us to our next question um, for Tyshell. Uh, so how do black people of color navigate the presumption that they need to be the educator around issues of racial insensitivity, like the microaggressions are talking about, um, and the education and that, <laughs> that a lot of white folks need to get? So I would say, I mean, honestly, it's, it, it depends on the person, right? Black people are not a monolith, so they're not all going to answer the same way, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use myself in, as an example. Um, sometimes I'm ready to have the conversation. Sometimes I have time to have the conversation. Sometimes I'm open to have the conversation. But I get it, for me, it's sometimes hard when I'm educating a person who makes way more money than me, has way more power than me, because I'm spending my my own time in, you know, we live in a, in America, time is money. I'm spending my time educating white people about things that they've never had to think about to help them do what advance. Like sometimes it's, it's really easy, right? Sometimes you want to have a conversation because you know, this person, you like this person or this person, you know, generally has good intention. A lot of the work that I do with allies is telling them you have to look inward. You have to go to your dinner table when you, the places that you don't want to make uncomfortable are the places you need to be making uncomfortable, right? Um, you can't go to a protest and never talk to your family about racism, right? That's not, it's not necessarily helpful. It's more performative. It's more outward, right? So you need to be able to have that, because we sit in this discomfort every day. So you need to sit in this discomfort with your uncle, your aunt, your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters. Um, and, and Gen Z's doing that a lot better than a lot of, a lot of us, um, and uh, probably amid the pandemic in general, but we need to be able to have those conversations. And then uh, we can't always be your educator because if, if we knew how to end racism completely by ourselves, we would have done it, right? Like we wouldn't be sitting here needing to have this conversation even. So it is white people's work. And sometimes telling them that I'm teaching a class right now, um, uh, on anti-racism. And I, I always say I start my lecture because we're co-teaching with, um, I'm not here to make you feel better, but I'm also here to let you know that don't let your guilt arrest you, right? Like, because that's not, that's also not helpful. It's not going to help you. It's going to make you, it's going to stagnate you. So both and, um, but also thinking about decentering the whiteness that they experience or the whiteness in their lives and being able to educate themselves inside and outside of circles with black folks in my experience i think uh, an, uh, an inability to be in discomfort is one of the the biggest obstacles to really anything but it's but really to this conversation having a, a real 
connection um, and healing around microaggressions. I'm co-teaching a class, like I was saying, on anti. It's a 14-week class, and one of the instructors was saying was making a, a statement about something racist that her father had said, something that had a racial undertone, and she started with, "He's a good person." right? You always have to name how white people are good, right? Because Christianity teaches white people to be good people. So if you do anything against what your good people is, then you have to name it outside so you can, so it can fall back upon you as a person. You have to be like, I'm a good person, or he's a good person, or we don't know his heart, right? I had a a supervisor, short story, I had a supervisor, I was wearing a head wrap, put both his hands on my head and say, oh, I love this, Mm. right? And I was, I'm at work and it's not my boss, it's my boss's boss's boss, right? And I was frozen. What do I do? What do I say? And, the, and I've had it happen to me countless times, at least five times in the last two years, uh, three years. Um, and I, did, I was arrested. I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do, right? But I saw a young black girl look at me with a, mm. I knew I couldn't just be quiet, be silent because of my own discomfort. I had to say something for her because if I if I don't say something, then I'm telling her that this is okay for to happen to her. Yeah. I, I'm an educator by trade, so I know that sometimes you plant seeds and never see flowers. So I just I had the conversation and left it at that. And then I went back to that young girl and said, I, I did talk to him, just so you know, because it's not okay. I want you to have a voice. It, it would seem like you're repeating the same thing over and over, just the cast of characters changes. So with that being said, how does an authentically motivated person of privilege go about learning and finding accurate information if they can't have like these awkward and clumsy interactions with uh, people of color? It's, it's really about the education and the discomfort, right? So once you start seeking out the education, you have to sit in the discomfort. You can't hear about something and then want to fix it. Like that does not, not work. Like, okay, climate change is an issue. Okay, how do we fix the environment? Okay, well, I have to learn why it's an issue and what caused it and, and what I need to put back into the environment and how to do it. And I have to sit with all of these things and knowing them. So it's, it's the conversation, it's the discomfort, it's the seeking out education, but it's also really about your, your own person position and trying not to be defensive. I had a friend who, I have a friend, and that's why he is a friend. He said he went to a conference and he asked, what can I do? And a black woman says, sit at the foot of a black woman and listen. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, he was like, oh, I will do that. And I can call him on his stuff and say, really? I call him on first world things and, and microaggressive things and, you know, homophobic things, like being able to have those conversations. So they will be awkward. They will be clumsy. Um, know that, know, sit in that, understand that, and don't shy away from it. Say thank you when someone says, you know, say thank you. I didn't know that. Let me, I'm going to look into that. And then really have a conversation with a white person if you feel emotional about it. Because don't, because a, a lot of what happens is, well, um, for our framework, white women are the most protected group, right? everybody wants to protect white women right so if we're having that conversation especially for me because i'm having lots of conversations with white women um don't start crying and now i'm aggressive and you're the victim right don't flip that switch you really need to go process that after we've had the conversation and you say thank you and we have it and we we're okay process it and then come back to me and say, you know, I really thought about that. I talked to my friend about it and I was really wondering, right? Um, 
you know, decolonize your bookshelf, read black authors, right? Read the experiences because we've put them down, right? I, I also, I think Daniel Kaluuya, who was in Black Panther and Get Out said, black excellence is a product of black um, oppression, right? We've put it on film, we've put it in the music, we've put it everywhere, you can read it, but not reading it from a lens of, oh, that's so sad for them, right? Reading it with the lens of the academics, there are academics who put out that work. So it's there for people to be able to read and understand, not enjoy, but read and understand and learn from. I feel like tyshell has got it. Like, I don't, you know, I don't need to come back in and like repeat what she's, what she said. So I just want to name that because I actually had um, one of my very dearest friends, Black woman, gave me feedback years ago about a, a, an overt microaggression where we were in a meeting and I said, I said something that an, an, another white woman had said. And later she said, did you, did you hear that I actually said that first? And then she said it. And then you, you like sort of lauded her for her contribution. And I was like, dang, did I? I get yeah. that a lot from uh, white men where we'll have conversations and then they'll summate at the end. That happens mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. often. And, I, and it had, I, I'm thinking about a time it happened to me and I had to pull that person aside and say, you know, you don't have to summate all of what everyone has said, right? You don't need to mm -hmm. say, I mean, it is very therapist, right? To say what I hear you saying is, but <laughs> not a, a, a one, one, one back and yeah. forth conversation in a group. We don't always need to say, I, I, you know, you can agree. You can, you know, mm -hmm. you can know what that person says, but I often hear that where they're summating and I'm like, no, I, no, what I said is the way, the way I said it is exactly how I wanted to say it. And I've had to do that before, but it, it can be, it, it can be detrimental in work as well. What does it do oh, yeah. for the person on that, on that end? What, what does it, how does it land? It takes the, it takes the, I guess it takes the mantle of what I've said away from me, right? But for me, it does, what it feels like is, oh, what that person is, is saying is going to be more important, or they mm -hmm. think what they're saying is more important than what I even have to say, or it discredits, it's that it, it creates imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I, I experienced imposter syndrome in grad school, right? I didn't, and I, and I say this to this day, I, I didn't buy anything my first semester at UPenn. I did not buy a thing. I was like, maybe they made a mistake and I'm not getting these grades, I'm not sure. Maybe people watching who aren't familiar with the imposter syndrome. And I just wanted to just add a quick note about that, that, you know, and any of us can experience this where you feel like you're a fraud, that you don't really belong here. You shouldn't be here. What are you doing staying up in front of the class for me? You know, what do you think you, you can teach somebody about this? Who are you? You don't know anymore, blah, blah, blah. So I just wanted to add that if that was helpful for, for folks who may not have uh, known about that. So I moved to Philadelphia from Georgia for college in 1994, and I was completely clueless. Uh, I really thought like colorblindness was what we were working towards. Um, and I was really fortunate in college to develop some authentically deep friendships with people of color who were patient and kind enough to help me understand um, that their experience was really different from mine and how much I didn't know. And so, you know, I think at that point as a white person, once I understood that I have a choice, I can easily remain complacent and kind of perpetuate that distance, perpetuate racism, um, or start doing some work and try to combat um, racism, both internalized, both personal 
um, and, and external. There are a lot of trainings out there specifically for white people where we can go and cry and do our work and we don't need to be witnessed by um, or, or put our sort of the emotional labor and burden on people of color to educate us. So I would say definitely take advantage of those. I think the best advice I would have for a white person who really wants to to show up for people of color is to like prepare, like know in advance how you're gonna respond when someone comes to you and says, you know, hey, when this happened, you know, it really hurt me. Or, hey, you did this thing and it feels like a microaggression. Like there's nothing wrong with preparing and knowing that you, how you wanna be in that moment and you know, everything we do, like nothing is neutral. Everything we do is gonna have an impact. So what impact do you wanna have? And you know, Tashel talked about like wanting the conversation to be over really fast, right? Like the guy you, you, you've spoke with is like, yeah, 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 I got it, got it, got it. Like, we can't do that. We have to be willing to like cross the bridge into someone else's world and say, how did, you know, how did that feel? Help me understand what that did to you. Just listening to Liz's um, journey and her own path, to enlightenment, I wanted to know from you, do you feel differently when there is no assumption of responsibility on you as like this subject matter expert, so to speak, um, but rather the, the white person of privilege comes to you really seeking guidance or help and is not just putting that weight on you, but asking you for assistance? It depends um, on, my, on my friendship, right? Like it, it depends on my time. It, it honestly, it, I've had some of these conversations Sometimes I say, girl, I don't know. Like, I, that's just sometimes I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, it depends on what we're asking from, because I think some of the work that I do, I have, you know, time and space to educate white folks, but I also have to educate black folks and how to, to, to um, dismantle white supremacy in their own lives. And that's an entirely different work, right? Um, we, we were born in this country and bred in this country to um, to, to the myth of meritocracy, right? That's why we go to these schools, right? Um, we buy into it as well. You know, I remember going to Penn being like, I want to play tennis. And then I was like, do I want to play tennis because it's like a fancy white sport or because I really like tennis? Like, why is, what is my motivation for doing that? So really trying to spend some of that time there and balance that time because if I am only educating white people and that's the basis of what I do, um, is there money in it? Maybe, but am I also then centering whiteness again, right? Like, do I have time for other things and other people? With friends of mine, I always hold them accountable. I always hold them accountable. And if you, if you, if you need some time, then you can take some time and we cannot have this conversation, but I'm gonna hold you accountable. But I also want to be held accountable. I am not free of privilege. Right. I have educational privilege. I have American born privilege. Right. I have cisgender privilege. So I need to make sure that when I'm having those conversations and I'm educating myself. Right. Like I'm making sure that I'm educating myself and not just like, oh, I'm going to watch Pose and I know all about trans folks. No, I'm, I'm going to have authentic conversations. I'm going to have read trans artists. I'm going to go to trans rallies. I need to be able to immerse myself in that as well. So I do that. I have the, I have conversations with people and I usually start with all white people are racist, right? Um, and people, and that gets like, a, whoa. And I'm like, 
Okay, but all straight people are homophobic, right? Because we have a natural reaction to when we think or see something as different or, or that centers our own privilege, right? So I usually start there. For me now, it's a, if you're not willing to read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, we can't have a deep conversation, right? And that's a place to start, not a place to finish. If we're not having authentic conversations in other places and other ways, then I may not well, Tyshell, what does this look like? Mm, girl, I'm not sure. You should read it. I heard there was a good book about it because you really have to protect yourself in that way, especially at work, especially as a woman. Um, more of the people in diversity jobs are, are men of color, right? When women are usually carrying the cultural work throughout, right? So I have to think about that when I'm having these conversations. And when someone authentically comes to me, I want to, I want to know that you're authentically invested and not just my answer, but in the work and not being comfortable in the work as well. You were listening to episode two from my YouTube channel, Black Story Microaggressions, which was episode two. And I can, again, I want to thank my co-host, Tim Wortham Jr. for uh, working with me on this really informative and insightful episode. Also thanks to our guests, Tyshell Graham and Liza Robb. As always, if you have ideas or guests that you'd like to recommend for future shows, feel free to send an email to officehours at thepracticalprof.com. That's officehours at thepracticalprof.com. We'll continue our coverage of COVID work-related issues, as well as uh, the second pandemic, which is racial inequality and injustice in uh, the United States today in 2020. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your input. And remember, manage with a heart in ways that feed the spirit. This has been Office Hours with the Practical Prof and Friends, a production of Marabella Enterprises. Follow us on Twitter at Practical Prof and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at The Practical Prof. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved.